Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined as always by Avi Cooper and Tony Brew. Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Hannah. All right. So diving right in, on tonight's episode, we are going to discuss blood transfusions. More specifically, we're going to discuss why we don't aim for a normal hemoglobin when we're transfusing red blood cells. So Tony, what prompted you to look into this? Well, generally speaking, I'm fascinated by numeric thresholds. We've talked previously on this podcast about the threshold for potassium, right? We replete to a potassium greater than four. And with potassium and other electrolytes, we're often aiming for the normal range. We want to sort of restore homeostasis. And even with white blood cells, our goal is normal, even if we're not actually repleting WBCs to get back in the black. But with hemoglobin and red blood cells, we accept values that are below normal and in some situations well below normal. And I, I find this kind of a curious thing. Yeah, I would say if, you know, for taking care of patients in the intensive care unit, it's certainly more common to see an abnormally low hemoglobin, right? Anemia is just really common in the ICU and normal hemoglobin levels are sort of the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I'm always surprised when I see it. And you don't spend your day transfusing people. Wait. Yeah, some, sometimes it's a surprise to it, see a non-red number. Yeah, right. And and, and I don't I don't think we we spend our days transfusing people to like get them. No, you sort of sort abide of it higher and higher and higher. Right. And and if you think about the comparator of potassium, that would never fly. Right. We're very uncomfortable with a potassium that is below normal. And you know whether or not we should be as uncomfortable as we are, we talked about in that prior episode. But nonetheless, hemoglobin is is different. And so I kind of wanted to look into you know why is that. Well, I have to imagine that at least some part of it has to do with the safety profile of transfusions. Right. Yep. Yeah, you know, giving 20 milligrams of potassium is a little bit safer than giving a a, um, a unit of packed RBCs. And it's just easier to get a hold of potassium sometimes, right? There's no like potassium bank that you have to request blood from and from potassium donors. <laughs> exactly. Get a requisition. Yeah, it's true. It's it's a lot easier, right? There's there's a lot of things, safety, ease, availability, all these play a role. But, you know, it's interesting if you think about the history of of transfusions, uh, it kind of helps to sort of put this larger conversation into perspective. I think if any of the listeners have ever sort of heard any of what Adam Rodman talks about in his podcast, they'll know that in the early days of medicine, bloodletting was a lot more common than blood transfusions. And actually the move to a to human to human transfusion was pretty slow going and in the 1600s people were really cautious about using blood in general and preferred if you can believe it the transfusion or the infusion of wine or milk. That didn't go particularly well as you might imagine. And then we finally saw in the 16 and 1700s the transition to experiments with animal to animal transfusions and animal to human transfusions. And it actually wasn't until December 22nd, 1818, that we saw the first human to human transfusion. And that was when James Blundell and Henry Kane used a syringe to transfuse about 400 ml, so not a ton, about 400 ml of blood from several donors into a patient who was bleeding from a stomach cancer. And as I said, this is kind of accepted as the first human to human transfusion. So took quite a bit of way to get there. Did Blundell and Crane know about cross-matching and blood groups, the sort of the risk of mismatched blood? Yeah. And did they, did they get, uh, in, you know, consent from the patient right. ahead of time in the sort of the medical record? No, yeah, no, they, they, they did, they didn't get consent as far as I know, at least. And they certainly weren't aware of blood groups because this 
idea of the ABO groups and certainly other blood groups, that wasn't discovered until the early 20th century by Carl Landstein. And the early 1900s also saw the, that saw this sort of emergence of other key movements in the field of transfusion medicine. We overcame issues with clotting, overcame issues with storage, and we also finally had the ability to separate and administer blood as individual components instead of as whole blood. Because typically and historically, blood was administered as a whole blood as opposed to sort of packed RBCs. And I'll say, well, um, you know, for anyone who wants to read more about this, we'll share a link um, to a post on my new Substack, which I've entitled Origin Stories. And in, in that episode or in that post, I talk a little bit more about how we got to the specific transfusion threshold of seven grams per deciliter, which again, thinking about sort of numeric thresholds, I, I, have, I find particularly fascinating. Yeah, definitely check that out. So it sounds like there was a lot of hurdles to overcome to be able to do safe transfusion even into the 1900s. And we still, though, don't transfuse back to normal values. And we've covered the sort of risk-benefit profile of transfusions, issues with access to blood products. But yeah, I mean, it's still something that we don't do. And part of it is still related to blood shortages because we have those even now. And I'll, I'll offer that the risk-benefit ratio, you know, that's one way of, of thinking about sort of the fact that it's a risky endeavor to give blood. We've, over the last 30 years, had a pretty nice explosion of literature on this, and there's been a number of randomized trials of different transfusion thresholds. And this kind of began in the 1990s with the TRIC trial. And you know, at least from what I understand, Avi, this is kind of like a landmark study within the field of critical care. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. The TRIC trial, which stands for Transfusion Requirements in Critical Care, was published in 1999 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it enrolled over 800 patients with critical illness. And they randomized these patients to either a restrictive or a liberal transfusion strategy. So patients in the restrictive arm were transfused to keep their hemoglobin between 7 to 9 grams per deciliter, while the liberal arm had a goal of 10 to 12. And you know the more restrictive 7 to 9 gram per deciliter target was actually associated with lower in-hospital mortality, and there were fewer cardiac complications, such as pulmonary edema and myocardial infarctions. You know, But it is worth mentioning, though, that there was no difference in 30-day mortality rates between these two transfusion strategies. And so, you know, sort of apropos to our discussion on this episode, you know, even the liberal transfusion group still had an anemic target with lower than, you know, the normal hemoglobin levels. Right. So th that's the thing is it wasn't like, all right, let me compare 10 grams per deciliter to 14 or 15. It was 7 to 9 versus 10 to 12, which is, you know... Still, let's, let's aim for low. And, you know, TRIC wasn't the only trial, right? In the subsequent years, there have been more than 30 trials that have studied all sorts of populations, and nearly all of them favor giving less blood. And we don't really have any trials that I'm aware of where one of the arm transfuses to a normal hemoglobin and sort of the comparator arm transfuses to less than normal. But based on these studies, there's good reason to believe that it wouldn't be a good idea to get people back to you know, 13, 14, 15. Yeah, I just, I can't imagine taking the average hospitalized patient and giving them, you know, eight units of packed red blood cells a day to get them back to a hemoglobin of 16. It, like, I mean, it- It's unthinkable. Right, it's totally unthinkable. And- But we give potassium every morning. Right. <laughs> um, and it's funny, you know, sometimes I think when physiologic deviation from the normal range can be so wide, we think there's a problem with the normal range. Right. But here it really is true that for the most part, most people who are not in the hospital do really live between 11 and 16. So I guess it's interesting. And I guess the question becomes, 
why can humans tolerate a hemoglobin level that is at times half normal, sometimes even down to 5% of a normal? And this is exactly the question I was interested in. And yeah, I think I, starting this part of the conversation, I want to talk about this idea of a hemoglobin reserve or a physiologic reserve. And evolution has given us quite a bit of wiggle room when it comes to a normal hemoglobin value. And one way to look at this is to examine how much oxygen we deliver to our tissues and how much oxygen our tissues consume. And see, like, what is the difference between those two values? So how much wiggle room do we actually have? Okay, so unfortunately, we don't have a clear, perfect study in humans. So we do have to rely a little bit on animal studies. But there's good reason to believe that humans are similar based on our just lived experience. So looking at these animal studies, investigators have found the resting oxygen delivery is about 20 to 30 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute. So 20 to 30 delivered per minute. And the resting oxygen consumption is just six milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute. So 20 to 30 delivered, six consumed. That's at rest. Boy, that is like the physiologically, evolutionarily rare excess. Because right, if, right I'm, exactly. if I'm understanding correctly, resting consumption is six, resting delivery is 20 to 30. We're looking at up to three to five times more. Yeah. So- the one thing I'll say about the reserve is it does differ based on the organ, right? So the skin and the kidney, they have pretty high blood flow and relatively low oxygen demands. So they only extract about 10% of what's delivered. And you compare that to the heart, the heart extracts over 50% of what's delivered. So it has far less reserve. So this idea of like there being a reserve is true for every organ, but the reserve differs based on which organ you're looking at. Okay. So but these numbers are at rest. It sounds like we have a fair amount of physiologic reserve built in. Is that to like allow us to do things like exercise or maybe from like a teleological evolutionary perspective to run down a loping gazelle or something on the open plain? Exactly. I think that is exactly what it is, right? So clearly our oxygen consumption increases with exercise. And there's other mechanisms to increase oxygen delivery, but we kind of want a reserve that ensures that before those mechanisms kick in, we don't immediately transition to anaerobic respiration every time we get up and walk to the bathroom or every time we're startled by a tiger and have to like, you know, jump at someplace else. And similarly, this reserve protects us from the metabolic disarray that might result from bleeding after minor trauma, right? If I drop my hemoglobin by 0.5 grams per deciliter after sort of a relatively minor bleed, I don't want to dip below the critical value of oxygen delivery and be anaerobic now. That just, that doesn't make sense. And so, you know, I, I think about in patients who are anemic, one of the first things that we see is that they demonstrate stresses a lot more easily. So getting up and walking to the bathroom generates a similar heart rate response maybe as running after the loping gazelle in someone who is admitted with an acute GI bleed. And so I wonder if some of what we have to talk about next is the cardiac response to acute anemia and how that gives us more wiggle room. Right. Because there clearly are physiologic adaptations that occur in the setting of both acute anemia and chronic anemia. And so we, we should talk about those. And, and let's actually first talk about what happens in acute anemia. Now, the problem with studying this is the fact that hemorrhage, which usually is what leads to acute anemia, I mean, obviously hemolysis can too, but it's often hemorrhage, it also leads to hypovolemia. And 
just the hypovolemia will lead to a drop in oxygen delivery and some of the responses like tachycardia, for example. And so researchers have surmounted this problem, this sort of research problem, by performing experience using what's called isovolemic hemodilution. How does one do isovolemic hemodilution? Right. So it's probably, if you think about it for a moment, it may make sense, but it's not immediately obvious. And so I'll tell you what most of these studies do is they take often volunteers, but not always, and they bleed them to a target hemoglobin. But what they want to do is keep them isovolemic. We'll use the word euvolemic because I think most of us know it, have heard that term. And so as they're taking out blood, they're replacing it with an equal volume of albumin or plasma, right? So 400 cc's of blood comes out, 400 cc's of albumin goes in. And one of the best known studies that use this process looked at what happens to heart rate, stroke volume, cardiac output, systemic vascular resistance, and a few, many other parameters when someone is bled to a hemoglobin of five grams per deciliter, but they're kept isovolemic or euvolemic. And so I'm curious, like, what do you think is going to happen to each of these parameters? Like, what would you anticipate happens? I'm guessing they all go up. All? So, so heart rate, stroke volume, SVR, oxygen. Uh, you mentioned systemic vascular resistance, didn't yes. you? Yes. Yeah. Well, I would certainly think you're going to try to pump more blood to sort of deliver more oxygen to tissues. So maybe SVR has to go down and all the others will go up. Yeah. Although I have a hard time totally like riddling through that because I think of the response to hemorrhagic shock as being sort of clamping down, right? Cold. Right. Right. So, but it does make sense. Or obviously what you're saying, like that you might vasodilate to get better oxygen delivery. So maybe it's the difference of isovolemic versus hypovolemic. Yeah. I mean, they're not actually yeah. hypovolemic. Right. And I think that's part of the intent of doing this isovolemic hemodilution is to try to isolate just the RBCs and, and just the hemoglobin. So as you guys predicted, heart rate, stroke volume, and cardiac output all increase, or in this particular study, all increased. And that's what you might predict in response to anemia. Now, as Avi predicted, the systemic vascular resistance decreased. And as Hannah said, this is a little bit less intuitive, so we'll have to think about why this occurred. But what is most interesting is the fact that the oxygen consumption increased. And this was probably secondary to the fact that the cardiac demands had increased, right? The heart rate, for example, increased. But this was the key finding of the study because oxygen consumption can only increase if oxygen delivery remains adequate. Right. So the authors, they did find a slight decrease in oxygen delivery, which, you know, <laughs> it's hard to imagine you wouldn't if you go from a normal hemoglobin to five, but it never got to a critical value below which the organs began to shift to anaerobic respiration. And this is actually supported by the fact that the serum lactate values in, in these patients was, were, they were normal, right? So they didn't transition to anaerobic respiration. And this was true even, again, down to a hemoglobin of five grams per deciliter. So this really shows that the body has mechanisms to augment oxygen delivery to sustain what appears to be relatively normal function. And I think that's just so cool. Yeah. Although so far we've we've mostly been talking about rest states. Uh, did these researchers, did they let the participants rest or did they put a tiger in the room? They were all resting. There were no tigers. And as you might anticipate, right, you don't have to exercise nearly as vigorously to shift from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism if you got a hemoglobin of five. But this study didn't necessarily look at that question, or I can tell you, didn't look at this question. Okay. So summarizing it all, heart rate and cardiac output increase. 
stroke volume increases because you're more contractile, I suppose, in this sort of increased cardiac output state. I'm still not totally understanding why SVR, systemic vascular resistance, would decrease as compared to true hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. So it comes down to the, for me at least, often forgotten component of Poiset's law. Now, when we think about systemic vascular resistance or the use of vascular devices like a PIC line, peripheral IV, we often refer to Poiset's law. And this law states that the flow of a liquid through a cylindrical tube, like a blood vessel, is directly proportional to the fourth power of the radius of the tube, the pressure gradient along the tube, and is inversely proportional to the length of the tube. But don't worry about all those because the other parameter, the one that I often forget, is the one that matters for our discussion, and that's viscosity. Flow is also inversely proportional to the viscosity of a fluid, and in this case, the fluid is blood. Okay, so you're replacing whole blood with albumin or plasma, so you're saying the viscosity must drop. I was definitely not thinking on that wavelength. Not only it must drop, absolutely, it does drop, right? The major component of viscosity of the blood is the red blood cells. Fibrinogen plays a role too, but it's largely the red blood cells. And so as you become more and more anemic, and that's replaced by plasma typically, the viscosity greatly decreases. And this decrease in viscosity also greatly diminishes the systemic vascular resistance or SVR. Now this leads to an increase in venous return as well as the resistance to flow to the right heart is lessened. So there are other factors that decrease systemic vascular resistance and anemia, but it's really the drop in viscosity that's seen by I think most people as like kind of the most important factor. So the increase in cardiac output isn't just because of an increase in contractility, but it's also from an increase in preload because of decrease in viscosity and a decrease in afterload, which starts with a decrease in viscosity. Like we don't think about viscosity very often, but in this case, it becomes truly important. Yeah. And I think when I think about viscosity, often I'm thinking about hyperviscous blood, right? like leukemia cells or big IgM complexes. Yeah, paraproteinemias and stuff. Right. Exactly. That are like slugging down the blood. But I so rarely think about what is the effect on cardiac output. Because I think so often with hyperviscosity, you're seeing these what happens in the small capillaries, the lungs or the brain, before you think about the effect on cardiac output. That's right. But what about in chronic anemia? So does the same thing happen? You you talked about this being true in acute anemia. Is there the same long-term decrease in systemic vascular resistance if the anemia is long-term? Yeah, this question, you know, what happens in chronic anemia has been studied for over a century. And in some ways it ties in nicely with the history of transfusion more generally. Because in the past, we didn't transfuse blood based on purely a value. Instead, there needed to be a clear pathology like an acute hemorrhage. So there were some patients who'd be walking around with a hemoglobin of three grams per deciliter or sometimes even lower. And these patients would have their hemodynamics um, studied to sort of see like, you know, what the heck's going on. And one of these studies was published in 1963, and it looked at 51 patients with chronic anemia, and their hemoglobins ranged from 1.5 to 6.5, with an average of about 3.7. So we're talking pretty darn low. And I'm actually kind of curious, and maybe Hannah, you should answer this one first. What do you think was the most common cause of these patients' anemia, right? 3.7 grams per deciliter. Okay. So this is a challenging question too, because it has to be a condition that was described in 1963 that you think that I would recognize yeah. now. I am going to guess 
a like broad category of congenital anemias because that's the people that I most commonly see live in life between two and a hemoglobin of two and four. So like some big group of patients that was eventually diagnosed to be Schwachmann diamond black fan and all these other congenital anemias that at the time, maybe we would have called something like congenital dyserythropoiesis or something. You have chosen the right profession, Hannah, <laughs> with that with that answer. Avi, what about you? I mean, as an intensivist, I have to say chronic GI bleeding. So um, hookworm. Oh, well. <laughs> Iron deficiency is, from hookworm. Yeah. 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 Mm. So 45 of the 51 patients had hookworm. Sometimes with blood deficiency. does just bleed. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? So the researchers in this study separated the patients into two groups. And the first had an average hemoglobin of three, and the other group had an average hemoglobin of 4.5. And, you know, as you might anticipate, the heart rate was slightly higher in those with an average hemoglobin of three, 99 beats per minute versus 92. I mean, not that much of a difference, but it was higher. The cardiac index was also higher. 8 versus 6.3. And both of these values, the 8 and the 6.3, are higher than a normal value of 3. And similarly, the stroke volume index was higher in the groups that were anemic, and their values were 88 and 68, again, both being higher than a normal value of 40. And probably as you guys would anticipate now that we've been talking, as with isovolemic hemodilution, the oxygen consumption was maintained in these patients. This means that they were still able to deliver adequate oxygen to the tissues, even with hemoglobins at times less than two. But it seems like they're doing a, they were doing a lot of measurements and <laughs> studying of the state of these sort of incredibly low hemoglobin levels. Like, did they try to correct the anemia at all? Yeah, like, yeah, we're not treat telling the them they thing? have to transfuse to 11, but like, yeah, could they like, transfuse to 7? Yeah, they did, but I think purely for the purposes of the study, they, they tried to get them to 10. And looking at this paper, patient one, I thought was a fascinating case study. So I'm just going to spend a brief moment telling you about patient one. They started with a hemoglobin of 1.5 and they had a final value of 10. Now, when their hemoglobin was 1.5, they had normal oxygen normal oxygen consumption, which I think is just totally wild. They're like, they were still delivering enough oxygen with a hemoglobin of 1.5. And their heart rate was 100, which is high, but it's lower than I would have guessed. They had a cardiac index of 8.9, which is three times normal, and a stroke volume index of 89, which is more than twice normal. But here's the crazy thing, at least to me. After getting their hemoglobin to 10, their heart rate was literally exactly the same. It was still 100. But their cardiac index and stroke volume index had both normalized. And so this, to me at least, suggests that the augmentation in cardiac output that these patients had wasn't at all due to the heart rate. It was from the increase in venous return and the decrease in afterload due to probably reductions in SVR, probably due to decreases in viscosity. And I find that to be absolutely fascinating. Like our body... I don't, it's kind of fortuitous. I don't think evolution made it so that viscosity decreases, but we're just super lucky that as we become more anemic, viscosity decreases, and that promotes all of these adaptations that we actually need. Yeah, I think it's particularly interesting because when I think of high output heart failure, I think of someone who's tachycardic. Yeah. You know, was the patient in high output heart failure? Like, did we? So they did write heart cats in these patients, and wow. they they don't comment on patient one's symptoms, or I don't think they comment on any of their symptoms. But they did have a slightly elevated wedge pressure of fourteen, 
and it dropped to five after transfusion. I'm not sure, Avi, if 14 gets you sort of excited as a wedge pressure. Eh, Probably I mean, not. No, that's, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's, it's not but normal, the, but, the, but it's the not. The drop is what's incredible, right? Now. Right, exactly, yeah. This is such an elegant study. It's also just remarkable to me that this patient got nine units of blood and did not have volume overload. Yeah, um, they don't say how off, how, like how no taco. how much time it took them <laughs> exactly. Right, yeah. precisely. If anything, right, their wedge pressure improves with nine units of blood. But truly, wow, the the heart finds a way. And you know, the other thing I kind of wonder about. I remember that hemoglobin can change its affinity for oxygen in the setting of anemia, particularly maybe a profound anemia like this. So I'm wondering, did they do anything to look at this specifically? Yeah, so this study doesn't look at this, but it is another important adaptation, right? So the, there is a shift to the right of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve with an increase in oxygen release as you become more anemic. So at a hemoglobin of nine, you see that shift to the right, but it becomes really important at a hemoglobin of 6.5 or lower. And this shift to the right is really due to an increase in the synthesis of 2,3-diphosphoglycerate or 2,3-DPG. And I sort of took my time with that one. But the shift does require about 12 to 36 hours. So it really doesn't explain a lot of the things that we see in hyperacute anemia. Wow. So just amazing. So it, just to sort of summarize that, you know, the reasons that we don't need to transfuse back to a normal hemoglobin is really our enormous oxygen reserve. I keep coming back to that, you know, we deliver 20 and are consuming six, right? Right. That number where there's just a, a tremendous reserve we have. And so physiologic responses to anemia are things like an increase in cardiac output from increased heart rate and stroke volume. Um, and we also get increase in venous return um, related to reduced viscosity and also afterload reduction as well to help increase cardiac output. And hemoglobin is going to release more oxygen more easily to tissues because of this increase in 2,3-DPG that doesn't necessarily apply to hyperacute anemia, but certainly somebody walking around with a hemoglobin of 1.5 is going to have a lot of 2,3-DPG on board. Yeah. And these are the things that fascinate me most, but the reality is, of course, we're also not transfusing to 14 because the evidence base doesn't support it. And we frankly just don't have enough blood to do that, right? We'd be transfusing all day long and the blood banks couldn't support it. Yeah. I think that makes sense from a safety profile perspective, <laughs> even if there was felt to be some symptomatic benefit um, that would have to be weighed. But, you know, so you mentioned, Tony, discussing some of the extremes. And I'm curious, it sounds like you found a lot of really interesting papers that have studied extremes of physiology. And you mentioned chronic anemia with a hemoglobin less than two. I'm wondering, were there other extreme values or extreme physiologies that were described? Yeah. So if you look at patients with acute bleeding, the lowest hemoglobin that I've seen reported in a survivor is 1.4. This patient was a Jehovah's Witness who declined blood products. And in this case, she had been diagnosed with placenta previa and experienced massive hemorrhage. And so, you know, I'm kind of curious, Avi, you know, you've got this patient with a hemoglobin of, of 1.4 declining uh, blood products. Like what would you do to maintain oxygen delivery and reduce oxygen, oxygen consumption? Gosh, she, she may yeah. be in your, I mean, she, maybe she won't be in your ICU, yeah, maybe she'll be in gosh, some other I mean, ICU, but. You'd, you'd probably give other forms. I'd probably give probably a mix of crystalloid and colloid, but definitely be giving some colloid. So you do some isovolemic hemodilution. Yeah, I think, you know, IV, iron, and 
I mean, if certainly if this was like an OR or something, you know, they, they would probably be using a cell saver to give the person back their own red blood cells. But yeah, that'd be tricky. Yeah, I mean, these cases are they have to be so hard because you don't see them very often. So this particular patient was treated with 100% FiO2 to augment her oxygen delivery, even though she had a normal oxygen saturation. IV fluids were given to try to maintain isovolemia. Iron was used, as you suggested, to promote her bone marrow to make every possible red blood cell it could make. And then to decrease oxygen consumption, the other sort of side of that equation, she was intubated and paralyzed and they actually cooled her, which I thought was kind of amazing. It's sort of together, this looked to me as like, you know, critical care is at its finest. And she did, in fact, survive. I mean, that is that is really extraordinary. The other thing I've heard of is giving EPO, kind of similar to the iron mm, piece. Yes, yes. But I think that's less for a situation like this in which you are truly trying to preserve every last bit of oxygen delivery and oxygen use in the body. Yeah. Just an extraordinary, yeah, use of physiology to describe to guide management. Do you have other examples of these kinds of circumstances where physiology really becomes important? You know, as I was writing up the plan for tonight's episode, I didn't, I didn't plan on mentioning this, but as it happens, the brilliant hematologist educator Bill Aird, he recently posted a tweet about a vertebrate with a hemoglobin of zero, the Antarctic ice fish. They literally have no hemoglobin, no red blood cells, and yet they're able to deliver enough oxygen to promote aerobic respiration. And what I found really cool about this is they utilize the same physiologic measures that we've talked about in this episode and that were used in the patient that I just reviewed, but they do it in this case to an extreme. It has this Antarctic ice fish, a large heart to increase cardiac output. It has an increased blood volume to augment preload and a very large diameter vessel or vessels to lower SVR. Their cardiac output is about 100, which is obviously higher than humans, but is significantly higher than any other fish. I mean, could you imagine having a hemoglobin of zero and still functioning? I mean, that's just totally crazy. And thinking back to the case you had mentioned, you know, where they had cooled them, I wonder, you know, those frigid temperatures, if this Antarctic ice fish doesn't really consume oxygen at a very high rate. Yeah, it's at least assumed to play a major role in why these fish were able to adapt to this sort of extreme form of anemia. And, you know, if anemia literally means without blood, they're really the only vertebrate that qualifies for that term because they literally have no blood. Wait, am I understanding that this is literally just dissolved oxygen? In a yeah, they use purely dissolved oxygen. It's my understanding. It's the PO2. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. That is, is that crazy? the most metal, iron, non-containing thing I have ever heard of. That yep. is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Bill Aird. Wow. Okay, Tony, you have taken us through just a tour de force of ways to think about hemoglobin and oxygen delivery and our physiologic adaptation. First, before we close, I wanted to bring up something that you mentioned toward the beginning, which is your Substack. Do you want to share with our audience uh, where they can find that and what's it about? So um, I actually don't know how to find it other than like probably typing in origin stories Substack or Tony Brew Substack, but I should have prepared for that question, Hannah. B-R-E-U. We'll link to it. We'll link to it. (laughs) Or yeah, or just going to our show notes. But I can tell you very briefly, I think all three of us really enjoy sort of finding out where did X begin, right? What was the first study that showed this? 
what was the first description of why disease? And I've entitled the Substack Origin Stories be, Origin Stories because I I enjoy looking for the like the beginning, like what was the first paper. And my plan for this is to, in slightly longer form than you can do in a tweet or even a tutorial, explore some of these issues. And so, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, I have a, a post that talks about how we got to a hemoglobin threshold of seven grams per deciliter. And to me, that's fascinating. Whether if you think that might be fascinating, check it out. Yeah, I've really enjoyed reading them, Tony. Great job. Thanks, Avi. All right. Well, in addition to how to find your Substack, uh, do you have any take-home points for us? I do. So when transfusing, I think as most of our listeners know, our target is not a normal hemoglobin. This stems you know, from the risk-benefit ratio, from evidence-based medicine, and from blood scarcity, but also from the fact that fortunately the human body has more hemoglobin than is needed. We have this reserve. And the fact that many physiologic adaptations ensue in the setting of anemia to protect us and to protect the tissues from what would otherwise be inadequate oxygen delivery. And that's pretty cool. Amazing. Thanks so much, Tony. So that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Claire Morgan of Notterly.com is our audio editor, and Giancarlo Bonomo is our producer. You can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. You can also subscribe to our Substack at TheCuriousClinicians.Substack.com. Physicians and other healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits from VCU Health just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curious clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. One last thing that we wanted to let you all know, effective January 1st, 2024, VCU Health Continuing Education will begin charging a credit claim fee of $10 for all new CME content. You can check out VCU's website for more information on that. Take care.